here this morning. We're going to get right into the word of the Lord. If you'll open up your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 11, we're going to be talking about uh, throughout, well, quite a few verses throughout that scripture. So just leave your Bible open. We're only going to read about three verses, but we're going to be dealing with that whole chapter. Luke chapter 11, we're going to start with verse 24. We're going to read down to verse 26, but then we're going to deal with what Jesus was dealing with prior to this text. So keep your Bible open. You might want to look back and refer back to the scripture. Luke 11, verse 24 through 26, for stand for the reading of the word. When the unclean spirit is going out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, finding none, he saith, I will return into my house for whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And then he enters, then, then they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Brother Richardson, would you pray the Lord's blessing on the word, please? Amen. Now I want us to consider the parable of Jesus and how it relates to, uh, relates to us today in our journey of life as believers. Because I truly believe today, today's going to be a liberating day for somebody in this house. I believe that God has set some people up here to be liberated from the prince and the power of the enemy that's been dictating to them, over, dictating to them their behavior. The parable speaks of a, a man that's controlled or oppressed by the devil and it speaks of his life and he compares it to a messy and a dirty house. And we see that a life of sin is compared here in scripture to an unclean, chaotic, disordered, unruly, and unkept dwelling. However, Jesus said that the evil spirit, when it's cast out, it loses his influence, that the, then that house becomes clean, well swept, and orderly in an orderly fashion. This speaks of man's salvation, and it also speaks of the regeneration of life. Prior to our text, we see Jesus reproving the Pharisees. The Pharisees was actually accusing Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebub. The word Beelzebub just literally means the prince of the devil. And upon their accusation, Jesus responds to them by saying these words in verse 17 and 18. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every house divided against itself, it's going to fall. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because thou sayest that I cast out the devils or the demons by Beelzebub. Jesus begins to let them know that it was not through Beelzebub that he had cast these demons out. As a matter of fact, he said in verse 20 of that same chapter of Luke 11, he said, but if I, with the finger of God, cast out these demons, then no doubt you know that the kingdom of God has come unto you. Jesus speaks of him casting demons out by merely the finger of God. If there's someone here today that feels like that maybe you've been controlled or maybe you've been manipulated to deceived by demons, don't have any 
any fear because the Bible says that Jesus literally cast him out by the finger of God. As one com commentator said, he said this, just Jesus pointing at the demonic presence causes them to flee. The demon was not cast out by the, by the uh, hand of God, nor was he cast out by the fist of God. He was cast out literally by the finger of God, by a point. In other words, just a flick, just the point of his finger, get out, that demon had to leave. Can you imagine that? That's like Jesus just coming down here and demons maybe bothering old Brother Williams there and all of a sudden the, the Lord come up and just points at the enemy and does this. And that means get out of there. And just that point by the master's hand, the authoritative presence of Jesus Christ drives the demon away. Aren't you thankful for the authoritative power of Jesus Christ? Amen. Jesus was letting them know that a more powerful one than Satan was among them. He was actually revealing to the Pharisees who he was and he said, if I cast out the demons with the finger of God, then there's no doubt about it. You have to understand, you have to see that the kingdom of God has come and appeared before you. Jesus was letting them know that he was a part of the kingdom of God and him casting out devils was the proof of it. And this is why that John chapter 10 verse 37 and 38 says, if I do not the works of my Father, then don't believe in me. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. <clears throat> Again, Jesus said in John 14 and 11, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me, or at least believe for my very work's sake. In other words, what Jesus is saying, if you can't believe what I tell you, then believe because of what I do. He said, I want you to know if you can't believe in me by my mere word's sake, then you believe by the works that I do. The demons are cast out, the blind see, the lame walk, the dead is raising again. If you can't believe for what I say, believe for what I do. Jesus was putting a stop to the their unfounded accusations and he was showing them just how ridiculous they were and them accusing him of casting out demons by demons. Their accusation was actually without merit. Jesus was saying, do you realize how ridiculous you really are, Pharisees? You religious bunch saying that I'm casting demons out by Beelzebub. When people give way to religion, religion over relationship with God, it makes them look arrogant or ignorant and it makes them look foolish. When people begin to to make excuses and make statements to back up their behavior that's unscriptural, it makes them look ignorantly and silly in the eyes of the public. The things people will say to justify their actions is beyond belief sometimes. I've heard everything imaginable. The Pharisees made their statement to prove that he was not the son of God as he said he was. Their statements were completely ludicrous and it revealed how absurd and unreasonable they were in their own thinking. They were illogical in their reasoning, lacking sense or clear sound reasoning which made them look foolish and stupid in the eyes not only of the church but of the world. And you know what? People do all kinds of things that's contrary to scripture and they say the most craziest things to try to convince people of what they're doing is okay. The Pharisees just say Jesus cast out devils by the prince of the devil. It was Jesus that said in John 10 and 25 he said I told you and you believe not but the works that I do in my father's name they bear witness of me 
Jesus is saying, I cannot do these works unless the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus said in John 5, verse 19 and verse 30, he said, the son can do nothing in himself. He says in verse 30, of my own self, I do nothing. Jesus was saying, if the kingdom of God had not come to you through me, then I could have not cast these demons out. If the father had not sent me, then it would have showed up in my lack of ability to do his works. But though I have done these works, that is proof among you that I am from the Father and that the Father is in me. Can I have an amen? And then he goes on in John chapter 5 verse 36 and he says, but I have a greater witness than even that of John the Baptist. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish the same works that I do, and they bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Jesus was just simply saying, you can say whatever you want, but I don't have to say a word because my works testify me of who I am and from which I came from. My father testifies of me. My father bears witness of who I am. So therefore, I want you to understand that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has the witness of God the Father upon him because Acts 10 and 38 says how that God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went around doing good and healing all that was oppressed of the devil for God was with him. Can you say amen? Give the Lord praise for that here today. I'm about to preach myself happy because I know where I'm going. You see, Jesus then goes on and he gives them a lesson of authority and the reason for their lack of achievements and the reason for their own slothfulness and their, and their apathy in the kingdom. He said in Luke chapter 14, verse 21 and 22, prior to our text, he says, while a strong man armed keepeth his place, his goods are in peace. But when the stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all of his armor wherein he trusted, and then he divides his spoils. First of all, Jesus said this in reference to our text about a man having his house cleaned and garnished. This is speaking of the devil having to vacate his living quarters in a man due to a stronger man throwing him out. This is speaking of the devil's stronghold and influence being broken over particular people's lives. Even as I'm preaching right now, I believe that the Lord is moving among the palace of praise today and every stronghold and every influence of the enemy is being broken simply by Jesus Christ, the strong man being in the house. Can I have an amen? Jesus was saying, it's only by the strong man that the devil is able to be able to be cast out and the house then that was chaotic and unclean and disarray will be put into order. In other words, he's saying that when the strong man is sitting there, that demonic force that keeps you bound, that keeps you entangled, that keeps you sitting there shackled, he said as long as he's standing there guarding his house, he said nothing can be done unless a stronger one comes by and that's bigger than him and takes his armor away and strips him of everything that he has and all of his power and authority and he's cast away. And then that place which was a disarray will be brought to order. And Jesus said, how do you know? He said, I just want you to know Pharisees, I'm that man. I'm that strong man. I'm the one that's come to put the house in order. I'm the one that's come to strip the devil of his power. I'm the one that has come to set people free. I'm going to come to set the captive free and set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. For the spirit of the Lord God 
is upon me. Can I have an amen? That's what Jesus has come to do in this house today. And you know, this is speaking mainly when he comes and he renovates the house. It's speaking about a man being saved. Because Paul said in the book of 1 Corinthians, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away and behold, all things have become new. It speaks of a regenerated life, Titus 3 and 5. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to have a regenerated life. The word regeneration means to be made new. And when a person is born again, he's made new, his house becomes clean and his house becomes swept. He has a new start on life. We call it being born again. This happened due to the term that we call conversion or that we call salvation. How many knows when you come and give your life to Jesus Christ, the strong man loses his power and he's kicked out and he has to vacate the life of that individual. Can you say amen? And this only happens due to Jesus, the strong man coming in and filling us, freeing us from our sin. Only Jesus, only Jesus can break the yoke of sin's bondage off of our lives. Jesus is the strong man that destroys the devil's strongholds and influence in our lives. That's why the first John 3 and 8 says, he that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. But this is the purpose that the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Say it with me, destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus came. Jesus was manifested to destroy sin's enslavement, sin's entanglement, sin's bondage over your life. Can I have an amen? This parable illustrates that the entrance of Jesus into someone's life not only drives the evil powers out, but it also purifies the person. As a matter of fact, he is the strong man that has taken the filth of sin away from us, cleansed us, washed us with his own blood. He has cleansed us and made us holy. Amen? How many is holy in Jesus Christ here today? Forgiven and set free of their sin. The strong man has come and delivered you today. You're born again. You're a child of God. A new slate, a new start, a new beginning. Can I have an amen? But notice the warning and the seriousness of what is said within our text. Verses 24 through 26. Listen to it again. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, finding none. He saith, I will return to my house which was, which, with, with which I have came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept, he findeth it garnished. And then he goeth, and he taketh him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than his first state. Now that is a very serious thing. When you look at the scripture, sometimes it don't even make sense. How can the devil, after being cast out of a man, come back and see the house clean and garnished, then he goes out and finds seven other demons worse than himself, and they come back and they occupy the house again. That's what this scripture says. It's very plain as the nose on your face. How can the devil feel or take up space in the life of a believer? How can that happen? How can he hold a position in a man whose life is clean and garnished? Matter of fact, the Bible says when he goes out and tries to find rest, he can't find it, he comes back and he testifies. The house is clean. The house is garnished. Can I have an amen? There's been a transforming power that's took place in this person's life. They've been cleansed by the blood of the lamb. Can I have an amen? 
I think a parallel passage of scripture gives us a little bit of more additional insight and information that provides an answer for this question that, uh, that, is, uh, that is one of the age-old questions in the church. And that is, can Christians be demon-possessed? First of all, I want you to tell you right up front, no. If he's going to remain a Christian, he cannot be demon-possessed. Can I have an amen? But I want you to know this scripture also tells you that it's possible for a person to lose their salvation. Can I have an amen? It's possible for a man that once was regenerated, once was made loose, the strong man, Jesus Christ, come and cast the demon off of his life, but it's possible for him to return, that devil, with seven other worse than himself and move back in and occupy the house that was clean and swept. And the last part of that man's life will be worse than this first part. That's what the Bible says. That's not something I'm making up. That's once in grace, always in grace business is for the birds. Can I have an amen? It's possible to lose your salvation. Now let's look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 43 and 44 and look at the parallel scripture that's gonna add a little information to make us understand this a little better. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, he finds none. Then he saith, I will return to the house from which I have come out. And when he's come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Now notice in Matthew's gospel, it's the only one that does this, he adds a word. He not only finds the house swept and garnished, but he finds it in another condition. He finds it empty. Notice that. This lets us know that sin is not only the thing that provides an opening for demonic presence to come into our life. We hear people all the time say, hey, if you, if you sin, it's opening up demonic presence to your life. Well, the truth of the matter is that's not the only thing that opens up demonic presence to your life, but emptiness is as well. As a matter of fact, when one sins, the Bible already lets us know the enemy's already gained influence and entrance into your life. Because the Bible says in 1 John 3 and 8, he that sinneth is of the devil. For the devil was a sinner from the beginning. Amen? Holiness is not good enough in itself. It's not good enough that Jesus, the strong man, drives out the evil powers from our lives. But we need to comprehend the importance of remembering the house. And we know what the house represents. The house represents the body. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the house that he's referring to. But we also should understand the house should not only be cleansed, but it should never become empty. Can I have an amen? Emptiness means that there's a void of the strong man's presence in your house. The very strong man that delivered you needs to stay in the house. Can I have an amen? The very strong man that cast the devil out and cleansed our house must rule our house. Amen? It's not good enough that the strong man delivered us and put our house in order, but he must inhabit our house. Our house must become his dwelling place. He who delivered the house must also be the dweller and the protector of that house. Can I have an amen? It's all too often that we see the similar uh, outcomes of this parable becoming a living reality in believers' lives all across America. They come to a place of revival, renewal, and transformation, but then all of a sudden the fires of passion begin to be replaced by the trends of tradition. Instead of people keeping a fiery, passionate relationship with Christ, they give over to religion over a period of time. They have a form of godliness. They're swept, they're garnished, they're clean. But there's a problem. They deny the power thereof. And even though they're holy, yet they're empty as well. Can I have an amen? 
Ah, listen to me. One man penned the words describing many Christians in America by this. He said, many is as straight as a gun barrel when it comes to holiness, but they're just as empty as well. Though they are clean, though they're not practicing sin, yet they're empty, they're void of Christ's abiding presence. They've had a, a, a work in their past of their lives, but there's not a continual working and sanctifying process that's taking place daily in their lives. You see, though they're clean, though they're not practicing sin, yet they're void of the presence of Jesus. They have been forgiven by Christ, but they have not learned to put on Christ. They've not learned Christ. Religion, you know what, is very boring. And many serve it out of duty and out of responsibility. But relationship, folks, is what's vibrant, exciting, refreshing, and people serve due to desire and passion. This is the difference in the cutting-edge Christian and the cutting-edge church and the traditional Christian and the traditional church. Many do not like even coming to church. You know why? Because they have form to religion. It's due to a religious spirit that's upon them. While others, they crave to come to the house. They're like David. I was glad when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. They're like Joshua. When Joshua said, for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Amen. They come in with anticipation. They come in with excitement. They come to the church because of passion of the heart that has formed, been formed by a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm here today not out of duty, not out of response. I'm not here because I'm a pastor. I'm here because I'm madly in love with Jesus Christ. Can I have an amen? Many are formed to religious orders and religious formulas. They follow after religious routines and rituals. And they find themselves cold and indifferent. And in many places, they find themselves flawed due to the enemy coming back, entering their house because they have found themselves empty. I've seen people on fire witnessing, praying, enjoying church, being challenged by the Spirit, asking questions, growing. They're loving it. Then out of nowhere, six months to a year later, they're cold, they're indifferent, no longer talking about God. They're no longer witnessing. They're void of passion, they're void of desire. They lose interest in spiritual things all because they're void or empty of presence and they become lukewarm. Haven't you ever seen people that just kind of roll their eyes about spiritual things? There are people that have been coming to church for 30 years, some even probably in this church, where they look and they say, you know, they just take it too far. I can't stand all this radicalness, this selling out business, this taking up your cross, this sacrifice, knowing Jesus, hearing Jesus, that God literally talks to man. There's people that only believe that happens. Come on. They look at you when you begin to get spiritual and begin to dissect scripture and the demand of scripture falls on the heart. They begin to back away and say, ah, you know, I'll just be a Christian from before off. I'm just gonna take my ease. Don't challenge me. Don't make me do anything. I don't wanna be anything. Just leave me alone. Let me be a passive Christian. I'm forgiven. I'm cleansed. You may be forgiven. You may be cleansed, but I wanna tell you, you're empty and watch out because the last state of your life's gonna be worse than your first. Can I have an amen? You're headed down a road. You're being deceived and don't even know it. And you have become worse now in your thinking than you ever have been in your whole life to even accept that what, what you are thinking is ludicrous. Can I have an amen? Did you know there's a difference in praying and seeking God? There's a difference in just getting down and going through protocol. Now I lay me down to sleep. I praise the Lord my soul to keep. If I shall die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Come on, just going through a ritual. There are people saying, well, I do my devotions, I pray every day, and their they're praying is not really seeking God, it's just a pattern I gotta put in my time. 
I got to go through the protocol here in order to be able to justify my feelings before God here. It's not really seeking God. There's a difference in reading the Bible and studying the Bible. There's a difference. Say, oh, I got to read a chapter today so that I won't feel guilty. So I'll read Matthew chapter one or Matthew chapter two. I might read five chapters tonight. But there's a difference in reading it and really reading it to get something out of it. It's, it, you know, there's a difference between reading the Bible just as a manuscript than it is to reading it as a love letter. I remember when Jenny used to write me a letter once in a while when we were dating, man, I'd read that over and over. And I, I'm gonna embarrass myself, but I'd pick it up. <laughs> Had perfume on it. Woo, baby. It light my passion. Come on, somebody know what I'm talking about? And we read the Bible sometimes like, oh, man, this is so boring. What, what, I want to tell you, you want a good sleeping pill if you can't sleep? Just get up and start reading your Bible. Devil will fight you and he will let you go to sleep if you start reading your Bible. But the truth of the matter is we need to understand that the Bible is the love letter from God to us. Hallelujah. There's a difference in doing religious stuff and having devotion. There's a difference in following routines and being led by the Holy Spirit. There's a difference in following a manual, the Bible, and following Jesus. And let me tell you, many just put in their time and they consider, well, if I just do this religious stuff, if I just go to church on Sunday morning, pay my tithes, walk out, and every once in a while pray at night, or pray my little five-minute prayer before I go to bed, that's my devotion. That's not devotion. Because devotion means the devoted thing. Come on. It's a thing of the heart and not a thing of just a mechanical thing that happens through an action. Can I have an amen? Do you remember when the woman with the issue of blood fought through the multitudes to touch the hem of Jesus' garment? She, I mean, she fought for it, didn't she? It was an effort. Sometimes to keep the house with the presence of God, it's a fight. There are multitudes against you. Everything in the world's against you. Can I have an amen? That's why when I get down to pray sometimes, it takes me forever. My wife, I don't understand her. She don't like me to use her as an illustration, but it's better to get forgiveness than permission. <laughs> we'll go into prayer and, boom, man, she's in the spirit. Ah, she's praying, crying, Lord travailing. It takes me sometimes 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes to wall her on that floor long enough to begin to really begin to pray through, get my mind off stuff. Am I the only one like that? You get down to pray. Did I turn the stove off? I wish that dog would quit barking. That's so annoying. Boy, and, and all of a sudden, everything that's passionate about what you like to do begins to come to your mind. And you fight and you wrestle. Sometimes it's hard to get in the presence of God and maintain a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's work. Amen? And Jesus says, here's this woman with the issue of blood, and she touches Jesus. And Jesus asked a question, who touched me? And the disciples turned around and said, what do you mean, who touched you? There are all kinds of people. You're in the middle of a hundreds of hundreds of thousands of people and they're all thronging you and they're touching you saying, you ask who touched me? And Jesus said, oh, you don't understand. Someone really touched me because someone touched me to the point that virtue or power left my body and went into them. Can I have an amen? In other words, this woman had received from the presence of Jesus Christ. She was adamant about her search. She was pushing, she was persevering she was, she was literally doing everything that she could to get through that thing. She said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'm gonna be made whole. And while there were multitudes thronging and touching him with the same motion, 
but none of them received the same results. Now I wonder how many of us sit in this building and only a very small percentage actually ever break through and really get that touch of God where virtue of his presence enters into your life. Come on. Some people criticize churches for preaching an experiential God. And they talk about, oh, you're always wanting them to come to the altar. You're always wanting them to do this. You're always wanting them to do that. Blah, 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 blah. Why don't you lay off the people and let them just serve Christ by faith? I want to tell you, your faith won't last long if you don't have an encounter relationship with Christ and know who he is. Can I have an amen? And I want to tell you something. This woman touched him to where virtue, power left his body, went into her and made her whole. Can I have an amen? This woman was not just a thronger. She was a toucher. How many knows there's a difference between a thronger and a toucher? Many thronged him. Many rubbed against him. Many had him had come in contact with him, but there was one toucher. All these other people were just going through religious protocol. How many churches go through religious protocol but never have an abiding presence of Jesus or the presence of God come down in it? They have a form of religion. They gather every Sunday. They sing their songs. They go through religious protocol. They do their religious stuff, but they never have a shakening of the power of the Holy Spirit of God. I don't want to just have church as usual in this place. I want Christ to come down. Can I have an amen? Notice, folks, that there's no way to keep the house without an indwelling Jesus. We can go through our motions. We can be faithful to our religious routines. We can follow our patterns. We can keep our traditions. We can do religious stuff for religious sake, but without a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's all in vain. Amen? Did you know there's whole churches that Jesus looked to in the book of Revelations that was established by the hands of the apostles that he rebuked? He rebuked them. All all kinds of different reasons. There's only one, Philadelphia, the church of the beloved, that he was pleased with out of seven. We have to want him, desire him, seek him, and learn of him. That's what we have to do. Jesus must be the passion of our hearts as believers. The only way to defeat the evil powers of the enemy is for us to submit to the leadership of this indwelling Jesus. We have to have more than just an experience or revival and reformation that happened 30 years ago, but we have to have an encounter that is sufficient today not only to cleanse our inner temple, but to actually protect it. The strong man must have place in our hearts. We must have a level of the abiding presence of Jesus in our lives at all times. Our devotion has to be sincere, not ritualistic. Our worship has to be pure and not just a display of emotion or a mechanical thing that we go through. Lift your hands, saints, okay? You know what? Never should a worship director or a pastor or anybody have to spur people on even though we do that. Paul done that to young Timothy. Stir up the gifts that's within you, Timothy. He reminded him to do that. We shouldn't have to. Our hearts are to be in sync the minute we get on the grounds of, 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 of the church. That's why the psalmist said, let's enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Let's enter into his courts. The minute we come in here, we ought to be able to lift. We shouldn't have to say, come on, people, lift your hands. Come on, people, sing your song. Come on, people, clap your hands. We shouldn't have to do that. That ought to be a spontaneous thing of the spirit because the presence of Jesus is in our life and we're glorifying the strong man that's taking care of us. Would you just worship the strong man right now for a moment? Would you thank the strong man that's in your life today? 
Hallelujah. Our Bible study has to be inspirational and not just educational. It's good to be educated. But let me tell you something. If you're just reading the Bible for doctrinal sake, you got to have, you need to be reading the Bible for relational sake as well as educational. Our commitment has to be more than duty. It has to come out of passion and desire. It has to be a lifestyle. Amen? It was Jesus said in Matthew 5 and 6, blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're the ones that's going to be filled. How many want to be filled with the presence of God? Then you got to have a level of hunger. You got to have a level of thirst. You got to have a level of desire. He's not just going to come back and fall on you. There's got to be an intensity of your heart to say, I got to seek after Jesus. Seek him while he may be found. Call upon his name while he's near. That's what the what's what Acts tells us to do. And yet we come into the house of God so much of the time and we just wait for something to happen instead of making something happen by initiating the desire of relationship with Jesus Christ. It was the Apostle Paul that said in Ephesians 5 and 18, be not drunk with wine. Where is excess? Don't be intoxicated by the things of the world, he's saying, but be filled with the Spirit. Because if you're not filled with the Spirit, the alternative is you're going to be intoxicated by worldly allurement. That's what that's in reference to. You can't have it both ways. You can't be filled with the Spirit and not be intoxicated with wine. Not the wine of necessarily alcohol, but the wine of worldly allurements. We, say, we can say what we want to say, but we need to be filled with the Spirit. I don't want just a clean temple, even as important as that is. I want also a filled temple. Amen? That which God has cleansed, I want him to fill. He can't fill it till he cleanses it. But after he cleanses it, he desires to fill it. To fill it with his dividing presence. I want Jesus, through the person of the Holy Spirit, to be a permanent occupant in my life. I want to be able to walk in the spirit so that I won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. We have to realize that the doctrine of Christ means more than this, the forgiveness of sin. But it means that sin is taken away. Then that vacuum is filled with his spirit. It means that the mind is divinely illuminated. The heart is empty of self and it's filled with the presence of Jesus Christ. Therefore, our thoughts should be upon him. Our affections and all of our energies are placed upon him. We bear his image. We breathe his spirit. We do his will. We please him in all things. We will be consecrated in all that we do, and all that we have will belong to him if we're really having his presence in our lives. We will not be like the young rich ruler that came to Jesus. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, keep the commandments. He said, what commandments? And Jesus gives him the basic commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. And he, he mentions them. And then the, the young rich ruler said, well, I've done these ever since my youth. And Jesus then begins to reply to him. He says, one thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And then come, take up your cross and follow after me. Get rid of your possessions. He tested him. The Bible says that the young rich ruler went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. He wasn't willing to give them up for Christ. Amen? Here was a young man that obeyed the commandments since his youth. You know what this tells me? When Jesus gets done testing him, that he learned how to be committed to religion for years, but he never learned how to be committed in a relationship with God. Is that possible? Absolutely. He never learned to forsake himself and his possessions and take up his cross and follow Jesus Christ in discipleship and obedience. We need to know more than just the formality of the word of God and be familiar with it, 
Because the word without the transforming power of the spirit creates dead formalism. Professing to have the spirit without obedience to the word is mere irrational emotionalism. Can I have an amen? But when the two come together, the word and the spirit, they transform a multitude of dry bones like they did for Ezekiel. And there comes a mighty army out of the midst of an ash heap. The cleanliness and orderliness of the house have nothing to do with the sad fact of the relapse. I don't want to relapse. Do you want to relapse in your life? A house can be cleansed and put into order. It can have revival, but if the abode becomes empty afterwards, it will eventually be repossessed. Are you listening to me? Then the latter condition of the house becomes worse than its first. Folks, we cannot afford to have an empty house. You can't afford to have an empty house. You can say whatever you want. There's a difference in a spirit-filled believer. Amen? When the house stands empty, it has a strong man guarding that house. I love it to know that my Jesus, my strong man's with me everywhere I go. When the house stands empty, we stand in danger of coming under the influence of the evil one all over again. To have an awakening, to have a revival, to have a move of God that will transform our communities and our homes, it demands that we have the continual presence of the word and the spirit in our lives. We're wanting something to happen in these last days. It's only going to happen with a church that's committed to the cause of Christ. And matter of fact, I'm not going to get into it, but there is an apostate church and a real church, and the apostate church is being revealed, and the true church is being revealed, and there's going to be a division between the two of them, and the way that it's, the way that it's going to be exposed is whether or not the house is filled with presence or whether it's just filled with a bunch of religious stuff. Amen. Can I have an Amen. And the house that's not filled with presence will be a house that will become polluted, spot, and blemished. There will be all kinds of sins, but it's okay. We're all under grace. Can I have an amen? And they'll live lives, and they'll, never be, they'll ever be learning, but never coming to the knowledge of truth, Paul said. Never being able to decipher what's right and wrong, justifying themselves all the time, and not only in the eyes of the church, but really in the eyes of the world, they look silly and stupid just like the Pharisees. Being, leaving a lie and being damned. All because they are void of presence. Only when the presence of God's in your life do you have the illuminating sense of wrong and right. Can I have an amen? There are people who do things that blow my mind. There are things that they put on the internet, what they've done the night before, and they claim to be believers. I think, are you kidding me? Are you serious? And they don't see not one thing wrong with it. You know why? It's proof. There's proof. I don't care how much they worship. I don't care how much they go through the religious protocol and go through the routines or how much they show up to church. Folks, there's no fruit there when they do such things. They're void of the presence of Jesus in their life. Say, oh, you're judging them. I'm not judging them. Their fruit bears witness of who they are. And their lack of works reveal who they are. Amen? We can say whatever we want, but the safeguard to the life of a Christian is the abiding presence of Jesus. 
You gotta have him. I've been serving him for 32 years. I've learned how to preach. I've learned how to study. I've learned how to do it. But if I'm not careful, I'll get caught up in all that religious stuff and before long, that house that's swept and garnished, I may not be practicing sin, but if I don't keep a level of trust in the presence of God in my life, the enemy's gonna come by. He's gonna find it swept and garnished. He's gonna go get seven demons worse than self. He's gonna move in the life of Kim Miller and that which I was before I was saved cannot even come compared to what I'm going to be without the presence of God. The worst, the last state of my life would be worse than the first state of my life. That's why that God commanded in the Old Testament, I gotta close here in a minute, the lampstand in the holy place. Aaron and his sons, the, the priesthood had to take care of it. We know what the lampstand represented. It represented the presence of God. It represent the revelation of God, the illumination of God, the inspiration of God. Can I have an amen? The breath of God. And you know what them guys had to do? Aaron and his sons had to tend to that lamp and keep it burning 24 hours, seven days a week, both day and night. It could not go out. When they moved the tabernacle, that lamp had to stay burning. Even when you're in the move and the transition from one point to another, you still got to have the abiding presence of God, though you're even in the move of obedience. And let me tell you something, folks. We as a church must understand, though that we have a good church and we've learned certain things in the spirit, we can't trust in what we learned. We've got to trust in the sovereign hand of God who taught it to us. Can I have an amen? Remember the story in Luke chapter 5? There was a man that had a palsy and he had some friends that desired to get him to Jesus and they go to the house where Jesus was at and there were so many in the house, the multitudes they couldn't get in. They go up on top of the roof and tear off the tiling. They get a rope tied to his cot and lay him down at the feet of Jesus and when Jesus saw their faith, he said, thy sins be forgiven thee. The religious bunch in that service said he speaks blasphemies only God can forgive. They were so out of tune. That religious bunch is still sitting there as a thorn in Jesus' side even after this passage of scripture of him teaching about, hey guys, can't you see? I couldn't do what I would do if it wasn't for the Father sending me. The very words that I do, they testify in me. If you can't believe me, believe for my very word's sake. They still couldn't believe. And Jesus said, well, is it either say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to take up your bed and walk? I say to the sick and palsy, take up your bed and walk. Thy sins will be forgiven thee. Take it up and go into your house. And immediately, the man picks up his bed and starts walking. He again showed them, hey, how did I do that? Because I'm of the Father. I'm a part of the kingdom of God. And you know what it says about that, verse, about that story in verse, I think it's verse 28, if I remember correctly. Why did all of that happen? Because it says, as they gathered there out of Galilee, out of every town of Jerusalem, and he starts mentioning all these different towns, it says, but the presence of the Lord was there to heal them. The presence was in the house. The strong man was in the house. Can I have an amen? And I want to declare something to you today. Not only do I believe that the strong man is in my own temple, in my own house, and I lean upon him because without him, I am nothing. 
but the strong man dwells in this house. There's a stronger one than the devil here today. And if you're finding yourself in chaos, your house is disordered, you're finding yourself with uncleanliness and clutter in your temple, there's things going on in your life that shouldn't be going on in your life, and you know it, there's time to understand the reason behind it, the root of it all, is that there's a lack of presence in your life. You know, if there's one thing that I know, sometimes you can get to feeling more holier than what you really are. I heard Brother Richardson laughing there. You can go on fast and you can feel good, man. I've been fasting for 30 days. And I remember I went 19 or 20 days one time without any food and I felt like, whoo, in the flesh, but I felt like I was a mighty man of God in the spirit. Amen? And I can remember during that time of fasting, I was just throwing it out. Lord, I've been fasting. I'm praying over this and I'm fasting for this reason. And boy, I'm just letting him know just how good I've been doing. And during that fast, I was reading my Bible more than I've read or read for relationships, eh? I was worshiping more than I've ever worshiped him because I loved him. I was just letting him know how Kit Miller was progressing and I was thanking him for even what was going on in my life. And all of a sudden, the presence of God came down upon me and when he did, I felt like I was so filthy that I, I felt like the presence of God was so strong and the presence of God was so great that even in my greatest, I was nothing but filthy rags. And it's only when you come in contact with a presence greater than yourself that you really begin to see yourself as God sees you. And then you begin to be able to really cleanse the platter. You can't even cleanse yourself until you have the presence of God to come in and put a spotlight upon you and let you know you're not where you need to be. And there are people that are sinning all the time. Don't even realize it because there's a lack of presence. And the latter state of that person will be worse if they don't get it into control. And they're going to live their lives deceived. Come on. You know, the psalm, the psalm of that psalm's 91. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. And he shall say, I will put my trust. And he'll be my buckler, my shield, my fortress. He'll keep me from the noisome pestilence. He'll keep me from the snare of the fowler. Oh, I love that. Why? Why is he a protector? Because the person is dwelling under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. Would you stand with me, please? We're pretty 